You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance. Live podcast. Uh, we are recording this live on YouTube. If you listen to the podcast, and thank you very much, it'd be very nice of you to leave a review or a rating. But um, if you do want to join us live and have the chance to ask our guests questions directly, then all you need to do is go to the Runchat Live YouTube channel where it is streamed and look at what's coming up. Um, and there's plenty of information regarding the guests that are coming up on social media at Runchat Live. So, very excited. This is going to be part two of a four part gate analysis special. Um, in episode 61, I had the pleasure of speaking, uh, spending an hour with Dr. Max Paquette, Associate Professor at the University of Memphis Human Performance Center. That's obviously available on all podcast apps and also on YouTube if you can watch the video. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking to somebody who I have admired and followed and managed to persuade to cross the channels to come to Run Chat Live conferences, um, Jean-Francois Scullier, or for short, JF. Um, he's Vice President and Director of Research and Development at the Running Clinic, plus a lot of other stuff. Uh, very excited to have JF along. An absolute, once again, um, an absolute huge influence in terms of running research and a clinician as well. We'll be talking about that, how fantastic it makes things when clinicians are actually doing the research. The same as all of my um, guests. Um, if you are interested who's coming up, then on February the 13th, so in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking to Dr. Izzy Moore, who again uh, was a, had the pleasure of having Izzy as a guest at One Jet Life Conference 2019. Another huge name, which if you follow running and running research, then you will have seen the name Izzy or Isabel Moore, Dr. Isabel Moore, on plenty of papers. Um, Izzy is Associate Professor in Human Movement and Sport Medicine at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Very excited about that coming up. And then on Thursday, March the 2nd at 8pm, this is all GMT, my guest will be Dr. Alison Gruber, who once again, if you follow the research, you should just be sitting there thinking, wow, how is this dude getting all of these fantastic guests? just connections, what can I say? I'm a very lucky man. Um, Alison Gruber, again, a huge influence in terms of running research, uh, assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Indiana University, Bloomington. So two great speakers uh, coming up, but um, tonight, J.F. Escolia, I will be bringing up uh, to talk again, once again, about gait analysis. For those of you who are in the UK, um, just to let you know, then I am personally uh, doing a gait analysis course, which is gonna be in May, uh, two of them online and one's going to be in Exeter, hosted by the school. So if you are interested in that, then all details are at runchatlive.com. Okay, I think I've left him uh, for long enough in the lobby. So sit back and enjoy an hour with Jean-Francois Escolier. Hey Jeff, how are you doing? Hey Matt, I'm good. What about you? I'm good. I'm just really conscious that I tried to do like a French accent there when I said your name, and I'm not quite sure how it came about. Did it cause you to clench a little bit and go, what the hell is he doing? I think that was a pretty good effort. Yeah. Oh, then, thank you. I, that, that's why I go by JF, right? <laughs> I never call you Jean-Francois. When I do, I can't help but try and give it a little je ne sais quoi, but it's, it's much easier, JF. Good to see you, man. You're looking very well. People listen to the podcast, and uh, you're missing out. Well, you'll get the French accent, but I can't, whenever I see you, it just reminds me of the reaction, the, the stirring which you caused in the Run Chat Live conference um, in the flesh, where basically you just had a lot of people who 
just gazing at you and just eating out your hand. Still the case, still got the look, still got the charm, still got the accent. Yeah, that, that was a great conference uh, that you organized back then. Uh, I wish you, you'll invite me again in the future. I think that would be great to, to go back. It's not a case of not inviting you. It was, it's uh, just things changed. It was lovely. It was so I, I, I quote it so much because people like yourself coming from Canada. We had Simon Bartol coming from Australia. We had Christopher Johnson coming from Seattle. We had uh, Derek Griffin coming from Ireland, and then we had English people as well. I also had Izzy Moore coming over. It's just lovely to I sitting back and watching you guys. In some cases, meeting face to face for the first time, where you've been following each other for like maybe ten years on Twitter, but never actually shaking hands with each other so it was that was wonderful one of the highlights of my life honestly after obviously marriage and kids so and it's great we're still in contact really excited about tonight um so you're well where are you are in canada at the moment i am so i'm um it's called Kelowna, british columbia so it's basically about four hours um east of vancouver in the mountains so i moved away from vancouver that was uh, two three years ago now and uh my wife and I are enjoying uh, life in the mountains by the lake, and it's beautiful for trail running here, especially. Yeah, I've seen the photos. It looks ideal. It really does look beautiful. So you've been involved in the research, believe it or not, I hope it doesn't come as a shock to you, but it's been over a decade now, 10 years since you first. No. So at least first I saw, I think the earliest date I saw you appearing on ResearchGate, I think it was to do with the shoulder. Um, maybe I think something like that was going back to about 2010 or something like that, so a long time. Does it feel mm. like that long or is time travel for? Uh, no, it doesn't. I think time is <laughs> time is uh, going by really fast. So yeah, my first my first experience with research was basically uh, I, I did research on Parkinson's disease and uh, and on shoulder injuries, like you mentioned. And the rest after that was all uh, knee and running and uh, they're pretty much all related to lower limb and uh, and nothing else about uh, the shoulder at that stage. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny when you look at your repertoire, there's two there which stand out and then it's, it's all running related, particularly patellofemoral pain, which obviously you're very well known for working with. How did that come about? Was it something that you personally suffered with or was it just an area that you're always interested in? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, yes, I did feel patellofemoral pain at some point uh, when I was younger, but that's not really what triggered it. Um, I would say it was more when I started working as a physio and I would see a lot of people um, in the clinic coming in with patellofemoral pain. I was trying to find the answers in the literature, couldn't find them really. Um, and a lot of them were runners. Um, so it, it, that kind of triggered me thinking, oh, like we need more answers. I have a lot of questions. I can't find the answers. So why don't I try to find the answers and make them available to other people as well? So that's what really triggered it. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted because I didn't realize when, when we talked about you coming on the show, you said, oh, I might have a paper you're going to be interested in coming out very soon. <clears throat> and it was totally surprised. But I mean, the paper came out a couple of weeks ago in early January. Um, I've got a little screenshot of here that I'll bring up in case people watching the video screen whilst I'm doing that. It's called um, Running Gate Modifications Can Lead to Immediate Reductions in Patellofemoral Pain. Pretty snazzy title, very definite. Um, yeah, it can lead, right? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean will lead, but can lead. But it can also lead to increases in pain, and that's definitely something we can chat about because it depends what you're doing, how you're changing the gait, what are the biomechanical effects, and, and maybe even some other effects that are not biomechanical. 
and it's free access. Am I right? Anybody can go and see this. It's not behind any paywalls. It is. Yeah, that's true. So that means that I paid for it because someone <laughs> someone has to pay for it. So <laughs> it's either a subscription based uh, model where people pay to access it, or their university pays for it, or the authors pay. So it's free for everyone. Was this your intention? I mean, did you decide at some point I want to make sure that everyone can see this, or was it for another reason? Um, it wasn't necessarily for that reason, um, but the the Frontiers uh, Journal, basically uh, led by uh, David Bazit Jones, they they were having that special issue about uh, patellofemoral pain, uh, biomechanics, and psychological or psychosocial factors. So that was a really good fit, um, and that's what triggered me to to submit that study to that journal specifically for that issue. Marvelous. I'm just going to put this on full screen. We can still hear you even though it's on the screen. So here's free access. Um, just Google it. Uh, running gait modifications can lead to immediate reductions in patellofemoral pain. Jean-Francois Scullier, Lauren, how do you pronounce Lauren's last name? Bouillet. Bouillet, there we go. I wasn't going to make some fool of myself. Um, <laughs> it's a name that appears in quite a lot of your research. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, Laurent was my um, master's and PhD co-supervisor, and, and Jean-Sébastien Roy was my uh, my main supervisor at Laval University. There you go. So there you go. You know, you said those names said them so well as well. <laughs> um, so there you go, you people. Look it up. I mean, we're going to talk about it tonight, but I mean, first of all, congratulations. It's a marvelous paper for so many reasons, um, which we will go into. Has the immediate reaction been pretty good? To the paper, yeah, I think so. And and to be honest, I was uh, hoping to get discussions going with that. Not that it's a definitive answer for anything, but I think it, it brings something new in the in the literature, but also in the clinical world. Um, and, and that that was the goal, right? It doesn't mean that everyone will react a certain way uh, or another way, but I, I think the reaction so far has been pretty good. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that you say that, but I think that's probably the secret of a modern evidence-informed study to get people talking because, and we'll probably mention this when we talk, we're having to move away from the black and white ideas of this does this, and if you see this and somebody, it's going to cause this because we've just never really been there. So I think, and I'm biased because I love the work you do and I'm kind of looking for it, but I think the first thing I thought from that study is you're challenging yourself the whole time. You're, there's no definites. Um, it's just marvelous paper, really well put together. And I said to you off air that I think if anybody is at university um, um, or even on, on pre-graduate courses looking for an example of a paper, here's how it should be done, then this is a great example. There's loads of places. It could be a before and after. You could take a study from maybe 10 years ago, which had all the best intentions but fell down the typical traps of being too definite, too black and white, and then compare it to this one where you're challenging yourself the whole time. And So, yeah, good job, man. Really good. Really good paper. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say that uh, every reviewer along the way agrees with what you said. Uh, <laughs> that's part of the publishing process. But I, I was pretty excited about this study, um, about this article coming out. Um, and like you said, it's never black or white. So I think we need to get these papers out there. And, and it's a very clinically oriented paper. It's not just um, something that's done in the lab that's going to inform future lab studies. So that was our main goal is to get clinicians to read this and say, oh, yeah, maybe I, I, I want to try this or I want to try that. Or, or it reminds me of a previous runner that I tried this or that. And, and I, you know, it, it triggered something that I wasn't expecting. So 
for for those reasons, I think it's uh, it's a very interesting article. I'm biased, but I think it's a really interesting one. Oh, I agree, definitely good stuff. Okay, so this is this is great. I'm so happy we've got some time together to break this down because so much of it has got to do with gate analysis and things we look out for. So, what gate modifications um, can? Yeah, you talk about gate modifications, which are commonly given. So, anybody who's listening to this who is involved in gate analysis will probably be very familiar with the modifications you mentioned. And anybody who's not yet involved and are interested in getting involved will read about these and they'll read a lot of misinformation as well as good information. So can you talk us through the modifications that you are aware of or which the literature kind of suggests can be used um, when you're faced with a runner with the telephone wheel pain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the research on gate modifications for PFP uh, has started in what around 20 2010 2009 around that time where, where it started when it started getting published and, and the first few were about changing foot strike pattern right so um, they were seeing uh, runners with pfp who were heel strikers and they were telling them okay no try to land on your forefoot and that will reduce forces going through your knee therefore it should help with your pain so there were a couple of, of uh, case series uh, you know small numbers uh, published by irene davis's group um, in the us who showed that so that that was kind of the start of it and then came the 2011 2012 uh, papers from brian noren and rich willie uh, asking people to try to to keep their knees facing forward to try to avoid that dynamic valgus or, or dynamic hip adduction when, when running. Um, and, and that one, um, I personally, I, I tried at the time, right? I, I was seeing runners with PFP and I was asking them to try and do that. And no one really liked it. Like from, from my clinical perspective, the, the runners felt like it was a strange thing to do. So from an external validity point of view, we didn't really uh, feel like it would be one of the, the things that we would be testing here and, and also for uh, you know in those cohorts they had to screen so many people in order to find people who had that excessive uh, valgus to correct it so it's not something that you might want to apply to everyone um, and, and there were a couple like i said a key series on that as well uh, showing potential benefits uh, but interestingly that has never been tested against a control group and uh, and i think it's unfortunate because you know that's kind of what this study suggests here is that maybe you can do a lot of different things that can help, but not for the reasons that you think they help. Um, so that was kind of it. And then the step rate era came after. So increasing step rate, taking shorter, quicker steps. Um, and that one clinically I feel is working great. Um, and that's one of the, the modifications that we wanted to test in this study. And uh, same thing with the run softer approach. So for me, really, like when I consider my order of interventions clinically, I will typically start with the step rate increase, then try to run softer, uh, and then potentially change the foot strike pattern. But and we can chat about it a bit more as it relates to you know Achilles tendon load, where you shift the load from one joint to the other and whatnot. Um, but we decided to leave some out. Um, the other one that I didn't mention is the trunk lean, so forward trunk lean, which has been advocated as well um, in the past. 
the goal of that one is to try and activate the glute max a bit more, reduce knee forces. But again, leaning forward from your trunk when you're running is, you know, is a bit strange when you try it. Uh, and, and people that I tried it with, they didn't really like it. So I, I kind of informed this research article with my clinical experience uh, reports from runners who have tried gait modifications. Did they like it or not? Uh, and should we include them in this paper? And that's why we ended up choosing the ones we chose. Fantastic. And then also the foot strike as well. That was interesting because I, I, one of the things, I mean, I've followed you for a long time. And to tell you the truth, I probably, and you won't be surprised by this, I probably read the name Blaise Dubois, your colleague at the uh, running clinic, before you because of his altercations with people like Craig Payne and that in the backwards and forwards, probably about 15 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, when it was more of a kind of, a, people were maybe less polite on social media, even though we think it's bad today. But there was an awful lot of shouting and you had Born to Run coming out and the whole debate and Blaze was proudly standing up. It seems like he was always trying to defend forefoot um, and uh, a more minimalistic shoe. And then you had Craig Pegg on the other end from Australia, very you know, respectable dietist, kind of calling Blaze and everybody else who liked Blaze fanboys and things. And it, for me, who was relatively new to the game and, and trying to read everything to see what was going on, it was really useful to me, even though it kind of came like these guys, if they were in the same room, they would destroy each other. But, um, and then after filtering that, then I found people like you who were far more kind of, I don't know, more level-headed and kind of sat back a little bit and then came around realized that it's probably somewhere in the middle where the truth lied. But um, do you still feel that the running clinic has got a reputation, and I would say a false reputation now, of minimalistic shoe always, four-foot strike always? Does that still carry around? Are people surprised when you're kind of challenging some of these concepts? Um, that's a good question. Um, I've been teaching with the running clinic since 2011. So it's been 12 years. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that we necessarily used to tell people they should forfeit strike, but we've definitely been saying that they should feel the ground better with more minimalist shoes. Um, I still think that way. And it's not necessarily because you want to get away from a rear foot strike pattern. And that's the key point, I think. So maybe that's something that has changed a bit because we now have more research and it's a bit more in, informed. But um, the goal of whether you increase your cadence or you change your shoes, to me, it's to reduce load or shift load from one place to another, not necessarily to change how you land. Um, and I, I'm still a big advocate of, of more minimalist shoes, uh, for that reason, even if the person keeps a heel strike uh, with a lower angle, uh, we we still see reductions in knee joint loading uh, with, with such a change. So I, I'm not focused too, too much on the, the foot strike pattern change. Um, and I don't know if that's kind of the perception of some people that uh, things have changed. But the uh, yeah, maybe the rationale for it has has become a little bit clearer. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. And like you say before, there was less research. So it was more, let's focus on the foot. And now we're not focusing on the foot. The foot pattern or foot strike may well change, but that's not what we're trying to change. We're all through different things like cadence and 
things like that. And then in many cases, the foot strike will change. So yeah, that's healthy. I'm just saying it because I know a lot of our listeners will probably trawl through Google, which which has no respect for date or chronological order. It just chucks whatever's got the most hits out. It's the biggest it's the biggest downfall of internet ever is the most popular article will always appear at the top. And that doesn't mean it's the best information and it's probably not the newest. So, so watch out for that, people, if you are looking things up and um, watch out try and look at the year and try and look for something the most modern to get the up-to-date information anyway so right so you were looking at yeah increasing step rate cadence um i'm interested with that because people will be familiar with that um, it's been shown like you said in studies that increasing it by 10 percent can take loads um, away from the knee i think it's important you mentioned Actually, you, you mentioned 180, then it moves to 189, if I remember rightly. That was kind of more um, the number. There's a danger again, isn't there, of people thinking, right, well, I should be running at 180, that's what I need to do. And these sort of people who might just only read the abstract or something might do that. But you also, when you look in more depth, mentioned that it needs to be done very gradually and work your way up. The thing I was interested in, I want you to talk about, is the speed. As far as I'm concerned, and I think a lot of recreational runners who see therapists listen to this they may be 30 minute park runs 30 minute 5k runners or something so they may be running 10 minute miles or whatever that is in six yeah six um, minute kilometers or something so their cadence probably not all of them some of them might be shuffling along the very high cadence but normally i would expect to run a running at 10 minute miles to have a cadence of around 165 and just putting a number out of a hat so I didn't, I don't know whether, what speeds were the runners running in your study? Because when you're changing cadence, it's important to keep the speed the same, is it? It's a, it's a great question. Um, in, in our case, in this study, we wanted to keep the speed the, the, the same because mm -hmm. we wanted to control for that condition, see what happens if you're running at the same speed, but reducing your step length or increasing your step rate. Um, so we definitely did that. Now to, to your uh to your other question, um, well, even before that, I, you know, all the listeners, I, I always like to mention that if the person is not injured, uh, is fully adapted to how they run, and they don't want to perform better, then don't change the way you run, right? That's one of the key points for me. Even if your cadence is 155 steps per minute, you have a high angle heel strike, uh, you land with a, a lot of impact, but you've been running like that for 20 years, You've been doing great. You do your park run every weekend and you have no pain at all. Don't change anything, right? To, to me, that's that's a key point. There has to be a reason why we want to change how people run. That's my philosophy. So whether it's shifting loads to a different area or potentially improve its performance, although that aspect in terms of research isn't as clear or as good yet. Um, so... If someone is running six minutes per kilometer or 10 minute miles, to me, they can still have a cadence that's quite high. Uh, there are some factors that might influence their cadence at slower speed. An example of that is the weight of your shoe. So if you're, you know, you're, you're going slower speed, you're carrying a heavy shoe around, uh, it must be quite hard to carry a heavy shoe uh, faster or, or more steps during that minute. So that at that, at that point, you become less efficient uh, mechanically, and it's harder for you to do that. So that's that's a big limiting factor that I found over the years is, you know, what kind of shoes are you wearing? And that 
kind of brings me back to that minimalist, more minimalist shoe approach where it's actually a facilitator for a lot of people to increase their cadence if they have a lighter shoe. And quite often I get people to try and increase cadence on the treadmill, fixed speed, uh, barefoot first. And it's way easier for them to get the barefoot because they don't need to carry an extra weight around. But when they put their shoes back on, it becomes quite hard. Uh, so definitely the shoes are related to the gait modifications. And that's why I use them in combination. If that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. The only, and I love talking to you so much because it's just, it challenges me. And I'm thinking, wow, that's true. And then the only thing I would come back with is if you put someone on a treadmill with even a lighter shoe, definitely no shoe, that isn't the body naturally going to land with a forefoot because that's what we do to protect ourselves if we're running barefoot, like kids and stuff. So whether you could do that for 5K, probably another question, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So you wouldn't want to do that barefoot for 5K, at least not if you, you're not used to it. Um, it's, um, it. It's sometimes just to make people realize that it's not, um, it's not too high of a step rate, right? So let's say they come in, they have 160 steps per minute. Um, they have knee pain and we're trying to get enough of an increase in cadence to be able to shift the loads away from their knee. And let's say we try that plus 10%, right? So, and, and we didn't chat about that. We haven't chatted about it yet, but 5% increase, there might or might not be a reduction of knee loading. Seven and a half, generally you see a reduction, but 10% increase, then you, you're most likely seeing a reduction in knee loading. So you're going from 160 to 176, which seems like not, um, you know, too big of an increase. But in some people, they just won't be able to do it because it feels really hard. And in that case, I will for sure have them try it barefoot to show them that, oh, you know what? Actually, it's it's not that bad. It's it's feasible. But their limiting factor might be a heavy shoe. In that case, it might be a good idea to consider changing the shoes plus increasing cadence. And interesting factor, that was the, there was that study by uh, Jason Bonacci and Bill Vicenzino looking at the effects of, say, increasing your cadence by 10%, which reduces knee loading by about 15%, or wearing very minimal shoes, but keeping your same baseline cadence, where you also decrease knee loading by 15%. But the most interesting part was if you combine both, the very minimal issue plus the increased cadence, and then you reduce knee loading by 30%. So, you know, from my perspective, there might be a benefit of combining these different approaches. So it's not just about how, what kind of gate modification you do, but the shoe might also influence, you know, the loads. And, and I hear sometimes people saying, you know, like the shoes, they don't matter. Let's just change how people run and uh, let's not focus on shoes. To me, it's it's not the best way to think about the problem because, we can chat about the shoes more uh, at some other point. I know you want to focus on gate modifications, but for me, shoes are a facilitator of the gate modifications. No, I think it's I think it's marvelous because you're right. Some people are like, oh, we know that we talked last week with um, Dr. Max Paquette about how a lot of people still think having gait analysis to get prescribed the right shoe. And we talked about the whole overpronation model and it not being relevant anymore. But then again, of course, yeah, the pendulum swings and we go, gait analysis has got nothing to do with shoes at all. And we 
don't worry about the shoes it's just the way you run and all this but i love it because you bring it back and go whoa 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 hold on hold on hold on shoes do play important well because of the weight because of the ways they're going to affect how people run and things like that so it's great and when i run it this is what i'm always saying because some people think our oh, gait analysis has got much less of a role now um, because we the biomechanics isn't quite so you know black and white as we thought but I was talking to this about some about this the other day. If a runner comes to us with a perception that we're going to give them the right shoe, if we don't give them a little bit of that, then either one, they're going to feel dejected. And I think your study mentioned this, where it's so important to give the runner a little bit of what they want. And it's lovely how you touched on that. Um, if, if they don't get a buy-in, I think you mentioned with reference to reducing their pain immediately. If they don't see something they want, then they're either one, not going to come back, or two, they're um, going to think this person doesn't know what they're doing. So... I think it's really nice to be able to tie in a gait analysis with some recommendations on shoe, and that's where you come in because at the moment I think you seem to be one of the only people who I notice anyway, and it's probably to do with the people I follow, who is still keeping a conversation about shoes. And just because, like, barefoot isn't the way forwards, we know, and there's not many barefoot or if any barefoot champions of you know distance races, doesn't mean the shoe's not important anymore. So I commend you, sir, for mentioning shoes. It's cool. It's good. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, and I hear all the time, you know, the, uh, the only thing you should base your, your shoe selection on is comfort. And that's based on some sort of comfort filtered paradigm that is basically just a hypothesis. If everyone would avoid injuries because they had comfortable shoes, we wouldn't see anyone injured out there. Everyone selects their shoes because they're comfortable. Right. So it doesn't make any sense to me to just leave it at that and say, oh, comfort, that's it. No, like we can do better. We can actually understand a bit more what's happening and recommend that people change their shoes based on a specific injury or, you know, performance or whatever. But it's not just about comfort. Comfort is, is obviously very important, but it's not just about comfort. We can do better. I think, um, and I felt this way as well, when that, and, and I think you reminded me, it's only maybe one paper, or maybe there was one follow-up or something which mentioned this kind of comfort. It's like one study, and everybody jumped on it because they were desperate for something to say to be positive. But I think all people who work with runners feel this kind of disquietness, this kind of like, how can I tell the person in front of me, just pick a pair of shoes that's comfortable. It kind of feels like I need to give them more than this. But we're still doing it and making kind of, TikTok videos about it and comfort's the only way. I think I put one on the other day. But yeah, there's yeah. probably more to it. You've got to keep investing. And, and have you read, Matt, that study? Um, it's from uh, Chan who uh, tested, it's called Deceptive um, Shoes. I forget the exact name, but basically they were in a lab. They had two different pairs of shoes and everyone was uh, testing those two different pairs of shoes. The first shoe, shoe A, was described as a very simple model worth about $50 on the market um, and, and, you know, very simple um, characteristics. The second model, shoe B, was described as the up-and-coming model uh, that is designed for optimal comfort uh, that will sell for $150 and so on and so on. And they actually had people try these two different shoes and run with them. And they looked at biomechanics. There was no difference in biomechanics because they were exactly the same shoe but people were blinded to which shoe they were wearing. They were exactly the same shoe. And they asked people to read their comfort. And obviously their comfort was higher in the shoe that was sold as being more comfortable. So we're having these projects right now with um, 
uh, Andrew Fife, who's doing his PhD on shoe selection, uh, and I'm uh, co-supervising Andrew with uh, Kim Eber Lozier uh, and, and Cody Ramsey out of uh, uh, New Zealand, and it's quite interesting. So we're doing these studies, asking runners how they select their shoes, how retailers sell shoes, and obviously comfort is always at the top. But the sales arguments are so important to make you feel like your shoe is comfortable. So it's there's a lot of the other factors, psychosocial factors, and that's what we try to touch on as well with the these gate modification study. Definitely, that sounds exciting. Wow, it's the, the running community is a better place with you guys in it. Any idea when that's coming out? The guy doing his PhD in the in comfort is that something in the pipeline or? Yep, there's a um, one systematic review that's. Uh, under review right now and uh and the other papers are, are being written so we'll, we'll get that out and uh hopefully within a year or two everything should be out yeah exciting if you're just calling catching up with the podcast um or watching on youtube and you're just joining the spirit i just want to bring this paper up again we're discussing um jean-francois scoulier's uh, most recent research paper running gate modifications can lead to can lead to immediate reductions in telephone pain which was um released a couple of weeks ago and it is um free access so just google it and you'll find it and it's a wonderful paper and that's what we're talking about so let me look at the clock oh we've still got 24 minutes fine so okay so we've talked a little bit about cadence very interesting we've talked a bit about foot strike as well um i'm just checking here I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it was, again, I'm commending this paper. I just want to remind people, maybe in this episode, the message will be how to understand what a good study looks like. But it was a cross-sectional um, investigation um, where you purposely kind of involved runners from different ages, um, men and women. Um, how much of that was a concern for you in, in making sure your population was as useful as possible in this study? Yeah, we obviously wanted to uh, to get the best external validity as possible. Uh, so we wanted to include both the male and female runners. We wanted to uh, make sure we also had those rear foot strikers and the non-rear foot strikers. And because clinically, I mean, I'm sure, Matt, you're seeing quite a few injured runners. Uh, people come with injuries and sometimes they are forefoot strikers and they have knee pain. Right, so we still have to figure out, is there a way to change their gait that maybe help them? And maybe not, maybe it's not a priority, but is there something that we can do for them? So definitely we want to include um, a, a bigger spectrum of, uh, of, of different types of runners. Fantastic, yeah. Like I say, it's worth looking at the paper and seeing how that process was done. Um, there's some wonderful commentaries on it as well and reasoning as well. So there was so the results are very interesting. Um, again, there's about seven things here. We could spend three hours looking at this paper. So there's so much interesting information in there. But it was um, it confirmed. Well, let's take it from from you, for example. What was what did you find in the results when you looked at these modifications, which didn't surprise you? Just kind of confirmed what you thought. And then question number two is, was there anything which did surprise you, which made you want to kind of like discuss it and look at it further? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to see it. So, I mean, let's look at the things that I was expecting or that we hypothesized before doing the study. Uh, so 
the, the main thing was about biomechanics initially, and then we also assessed symptoms, right? So we had people on the treadmill, like you said, this is a cross-sectional study. So we had them on the treadmill. They were running for five minutes at their normal, with their normal technique. Uh, and we were recording the 3D motion capture, ground reaction force, all that stuff. And then we asked them to change uh, with six different gait modifications. So just to summarize for people who won't go and read the study, um, the first one was to increase their step rate by 10%. And then uh, they were increasing their step rate to 180 steps per minute because it's been suggested in the literature uh, in some instances. Um, then we had them decrease their step rate by 10%. Then number four, um, going to a four foot strike pattern. Number five, heel striking. And number six, running softer. So try to land uh, with less impact, less noise. Um, so what we were expecting uh, was to see a reduction of knee loading and ground reaction force by increasing cadence, by going forefoot, at least for those who were rear foot strikers, and by running softer. And those things, we, we, we got that in our results. So no surprise there. Um, from a clinical perspective, we also asked them, um, you know, their baseline level of symptoms when they were running on the treadmill. And we were asking them for each gait modification to rate their pain level out of 10, just to know if it reduced, if it increased, if it stayed the same. Um, because clinically, that's something that I see, but not in everyone. Sometimes you get someone to change the way they run and they feel better right away. And that's usually a very good selling point to say, okay, I'm going to change the way I run uh, this way because it feels better. But some people, it just doesn't happen right away. And for some others, it increases their pain. So that's kind of what we wanted to, to look at here. And, um, and we did notice quite a few people who said, you know, it hurts less when I reduce the, the loading on my knee. So basically increasing cadence, run softer, forefoot strike. So that, that was kind of expected, uh, maybe I should say like that. Uh, what wasn't expected, though, um, is that some people reported reduced symptoms with gait modifications that increase knee loading. And as an example of that, when people were told, say, reduce your cadence by 10%, so for example, they're going from 170 to 153, okay, some people were saying, well, it actually hurts less. And they were giving us a pain score that was lower than their baseline. Same thing when asking them to uh, rear foot strike, um, they also were reporting that sometimes. So that was kind of unexpected. And we also noticed that there was a subset of runners. Um, <clears throat> there's actually 28% of, of the responders who reported lower symptoms with gait modifications that reported less pain with at least three gait modifications. And we even had five or six people uh, who reported less pain with five or six gait modifications. So, you know, basically that was, that was intriguing to me because we're basically asking them to do whatever, just change the way you run. We don't really care what's happening biomechanically, but changing the way they ran led to less pain. And in between each condition, we were getting them back to their normal, right? Uh, just to do like a washout and their pain level would 
come back to their normal. So it's not like, oh, it went away. And then regardless of what we did, the pain was just gone. It's just, it was going down, back to their normal, pain was coming back up. Doing whatever else, pain was coming down, going back to their normal, pain was going back up. So that was really intriguing. Um, and, and that's a big part of our discussion in this paper is, you know, why is this happening? And I don't have an answer. I, I don't know, but it raises questions in some people, maybe gate modifications it just helps and for not for the reasons that we thought uh, would help them. Yeah. I mean, you go, you go into the discussion, you mentioned the um, potentially the psychosocial kind of aspect. Maybe this kind of supports the idea that pain being an output and just give the nervous system a chance to do something different and it will thank you very much and kind of output less pain so that's definitely an interesting avenue for people to explore it could be that but again i love the way even now on the podcast you are suggesting but even my assumption of what could be causing it may be wrong as well you're always very quick to make sure that what you kind of talk about and suggest could be is not definitely it just what makes this paper so healthy Mm -hmm. um yeah great show i'm interested I can't remember from looking at the paper whether the people who did show um, a positive response or less pain when they actually did something which technically was supposed to increase the load. Were these people, did you see in the study whether these were people who were definitely doing something different than they normally do, did, for example? So was it like the, I don't know, the rear foot strikers who when they, no, when the habitual forefoot strikers or non-rear foot strikers went to a rear foot, even though we'd expect that to increase load and hurt the knee, were they part of the population who actually reported that symptoms were better? Yeah, so for those who will read the, the paper, the, the figure one that we try to, to to make as informative as possible, where you see, okay, like the rear foot strikers, when they were doing this or that, uh, how many got better, how many got worse? Same with the non-rear foot strikers. So to answer your question, uh, say like the rear foot strikers, uh, when they were asked to four foot strike, 13 of them said, I feel better. Mm-hmm. But then interestingly, four of them, when we asked them to heel strike, and if they were already heel strikers, we were telling them, don't exaggerate anything, you know, like okay. don't go to like a massive heel strike. Yeah. Uh, but four of them said they felt better. Oh, even though in theory, the kinematics stayed the same. Yep. <laughs> That's and, great. and then in the non-rear foot strikers, so we had uh, two people uh, and we told them to four foot strike and maybe those people kind of did it a bit more, but two of them said they had less pain. And one of them going to a heel strike said uh, they felt better. So, you know, and decreasing cadence, uh, two of the non-rear foot strikers said they felt better. Mm-hmm. And these numbers would typically be kind of the same two people, right, in that category who reported multiple uh, gait modifications as being beneficial for them. So that's kind of, uh, we, we uh, provided that in supplementary file. You see the pain scores for every single participant. And you can see that some of them, they react well to multiple things. Uh, and, and it's quite interesting and, and intriguing, I think. It's fascinating and it's a real message um, to clinicians because traditionally, and this is where clinicians often go wrong and I think why runners are still getting 
part of the reason why runners are getting so injured still, because clinicians will brush under the carpet the times where increasing cadence didn't help with that patellofemoral pain, or when they kind of changed to a forefoot and actually hurt more. And we kind of, that doesn't fit in with our, uh, of our format of how things are supposed to work. When you're showing in your study that actually the times it doesn't work are the really important times you do need to note in order to get a clearer picture of what's happening here. Um, and, and that will help you with other clients because you're going to get some clients who don't fit the mold, who don't kind of do what it says in the textbook. So rather than ignoring these people and let your confirmation bias only record the times it did work, you guys in the study are highlighting the fact that these guys, these seven or eight runners, how many was it, didn't work. We'd expect mm -hmm. by the book for not to work. So, but rather than ignore it, you've highlighted it and gone, right, what are some possible explanations for that? So, yeah. And obviously, being a cross sectional design, you know, we're talking about immediate responders. So, we don't know if these changes would last over time. Um, you know, they go back home, they practice it. Is it, get, is it just always going to be better? Or was it a, a contextual thing where they had to think about it a bit more while they were changing it? But as it becomes, um, not second nature or more natural, but then the effect kind of fades. I, I don't have the answer. We couldn't uh, study that with our, our study design, but I, I think that's quite interesting, at least as a starting point. And, and hopefully at some point there are studies that um, try to correlate uh, the immediate response with um, the, uh, the effects of an actual gait retraining program afterwards. So with the effects last or or not mm -hmm. definitely and also they have done some studies whether the kinematic changes actually kept going or whether they reverted to their old style of running and the pain kind of went whether it's that seems always interesting as well oh so many things you continue i want to make sure that we mention as well because again i was very impressed with the fact that you were measuring other variables for example the achilles tendon force changes in that because again for people listening that's a really important message if you're getting into gait analysis it's just remembering straight away and I think it was probably Craig Payne actually the person I read who reiterated this the whole time that that different shoes would do different things to different people at different times you know with different speeds and all that but we can't get rid of the load we can't just get rid of it all we can do is kind of move it from one tissue to another so I thought it was really interesting for you to note that and highlight it in the paper because if we are generally taking load away from the knee by doing these things in a lot of cases we we are actually shifting load more to the posterior and the, the Achilles and the calf, aren't we? So what did you find when you were measuring that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point because clinically you don't want to, uh, you know, help knee pain and then cause them an Achilles tendon issue. Really. Uh, wouldn't be a, it would be a great Good business model, model. <laughs> <laughs> but not ideal. Um, so what we found is that uh, like pretty much, you know, all the, the cadence, uh, well, the cadence increase didn't change anything in terms of Achilles tendon load. Uh, cadence decrease by 10% increased uh, the load at the Achilles tendon. And so did um, forefoot striking, as you might expect. And, uh, and heel striking reduced the load at the Achilles tendon. So like you said, it, it's about shifting forces, shifting load from one place to another. But maybe I'll, I'll push the reasoning a, a bit further because all the studies on cadence uh, show that you you might reduce load. You never increase load when you increase cadence, right? So you, you tend to reduce the vertical ground reaction force or vertical loading rate. You reduce peak plantar pressure by increasing your cadence. 
Some studies say you might decrease the Achilles tendon load, which we didn't find here, but some studies uh, do. Um, you reduce tibial acceleration quite often. You reduce knee loading. You reduce hip loading. So to your point, you don't uh, eliminate the load or you don't make it disappear. I will say the distribution is not just from one joint to the other. Sometimes it's the cumulative load with the run. Right, so say you're taking more steps over the course of one kilometer, then your cumulative load might just be the same. But each step you will reduce your max amount of load and increasing cadence might do that to every single spot. At least it doesn't increase load. And that can be helpful potentially for some tissues that might respond better to repetition at lower load. Um, so if that makes sense, uh, for example, for me, if you have a joint injury, uh, joints, they typically don't like being smashed really hard, but they respond well to more repetitions at a lower load. So even though increasing your cadence overall maintains the same cumulative load, potentially, potentially less, but potentially the same, um, the way you're loading the tissue might potentially help a bit more. So that's kind of how I see it. So I wouldn't say, again, it's black and white, you know, no change overall versus there's a change, but there seems to be something in between. Very interesting. And you, meant, and you mentioned, I think, in the discussion that, and again, it's worth reiterating people listening to the podcast, that all the changes, your, your, your conclusion is if you're going to make changes and play around with pretty much any variables and do it gradually, don't jump from one thing to another with too sharp an increase depending on the the actual change right mm -hmm. so in this case for sure if your intention is to change the foot strike pattern you need to do it gradually you can't just all of a sudden start landing on your forefoot and like it will hurt your achilles and will hurt your forefoot uh, because that's a big shift in loading but if you increase your cadence based on what i was just saying you're actually reducing load everywhere or maintaining the same in some places. To me, it's not a problem to just go right away and start adopting that increased cadence uh, for, for every single run uh, all the time. Because my goal is to reduce load and decrease irritation at a certain body part, and I can achieve it without overloading anything else. So for increasing cadence, for me, that's a right away thing. For if I get to the point where I say, okay, maybe we need to change your foot strike pattern, which I haven't done very often in, in many years, then that needs to be gradual. Um, so that's kind of the, the difference I make uh, for, for how quickly you can implement gate modifications. How about, and again, this will vary from individual to individual, but how about the, the energy cost of actually consciously changing something to do with your running? That could affect people some people quite a lot when they're having to consciously make a change and that will reduce their economy and they don't want to do it for too long. So is that something, again, you've got to look at the individual and see how easy it is for them to actually make these changes without getting all out of breath and flustered? Yep. Clinically, it always depends what, what is my priority, right? If it's, say, someone training for a half marathon, the half marathon is in 10 weeks from now, uh, they're injured. Their goal is to just get to the start line, run their half marathon, be happy. They don't have a a personal best objective, then they won't care too, too much if the changes that we make for reducing load make them a bit less efficient, at least in the short term. 
So if that's the case, then I'll just rely on the studies that we have out there. For example, a review by Moran 2020 uh, saying if you change your, your gait in the next, say, two, three, maybe four weeks, you will feel a bit less efficient. You will be a bit less efficient, but then it should normalize afterwards. And it, it doesn't mean that you'll be more efficient, but you will go back to your baseline. And that's what I see in, in a lot of people. They say, you know, I practice it for two, three, four weeks, whatever, and then I'm comfortable with it now. So if the goal is a bit further away and my main priority is reducing load uh, to allow them to run their objective, I don't think it's a problem at all. Now, if you're dealing with higher level athletes, then it, it might be different. And also changing gait in a high level athlete is a totally different thing because when you're running 100, 150, 200 kilometers a week a certain way, if you change the way you run, I'm not sure it's the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. So to treat those people, I will be very, very careful changing their gait. I will focus on the training load, the recovery uh, the strengthening, all these other things, right? Gate modifications is only one part of the puzzle. I think that's a, a, a fair thing to say, and we shouldn't be changing everyone's gait. Uh, but think about, you know, what's, what's my objective with this patient? And uh, is it safe or not? What's my risk-benefit ratio? And, um, and then you, you should get your answer. And ask the person what they want to do as well. Great response. Yeah, great information for people to take on board. Um, where are we time-wise, just to make sure I don't keep too long. I was interested in one of the suggestions you made with the people who did experience increases in pain where you'd expect, if you know the load's going to be less, yet they're still reporting increases. You suggested that maybe um, it was to do with the amount of muscle contractions around the telephenol joint, and you figured out that maybe in these cases, rather than doing gait modifications, we should look at the more traditional stuff like overloading and exercise and stuff like that. Um, do you feel that that's still quite a good way of looking at it in terms of people who, when gait returning doesn't work, then go back to the case history and see what they're doing in terms of you know, training and things like that? It's, it's always my go-to. It's always my number one, right? When I assess an injured runner, I always look at their training loads and all like everything they do in terms of, of training and recovery. Um, and for sure, there's something to be done there. Like a hundred percent of the time I will change stuff from like in these aspects. Uh, how often will I change gate modification, gate, gate in, in those uh, injured runners? Um, is it 25%? Is it uh, 50%? I, I can't tell you, but it's no more than 50%. For sure, and might be closer to 25% where I actually change how people run because I will not necessarily focus on that. But definitely, if you try something and it hurts more, then it's not a good idea to <laughs> to recommend that to people. And and the example, like you said, of more muscle co-contractions came from, uh, for example, the run softer approach. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to run softer, when you're asking your patients to run softer, you might see. Uh, you know, a number of things, right? You might see the one running like they're trying to sneak in on someone or, uh, or, or the person, uh, you know, and they might heel strike uh, quite a bit, but reduce their flight time and increase their ground contact time. So you can see a lot of different things. And, uh, and, and just trying to be quieter might 
trigger more muscle contractions and more compression in the patellofemoral joint. So it's definitely an intervention that might work in some people, uh, but you won't know until you try it. And sometimes I ask the person to do it. I look at them for 10 seconds and I, nope, let's try something else. Uh, even before asking them, you know, if it hurts more or not. Yeah. And this is, again, this is uh, something which you guys mentioned wonderfully in the discussion afterwards and the fact that people might need different cues or react different to the same cue. It's, it's a wonderful paper and it really is good. And you cover all of this. And again, how we started, I said that this paper, I'm glad to hear this is one of your intentions, kind of isn't just giving a black and white recipe on how to kind of fix telephone pain. It's just opening discussion, making people talk and essentially realizing that it's a jigsaw. You've got to try these things with the run in front of you. And it's useful knowing what to try. That's really important. Have loads of tools, but don't expect them always to work. Yeah, Great and stuff. If, if I was to do this uh, this study again, I would probably ask people about their expectations too, which we didn't do. But were they expecting, well, I would ask it before doing the study, but are they expecting, you know, any running gait modifications to help their pain or not? Uh, what is their preference for, for treatment approach? And all these things that we now realize that, you know, it's so important. And it's not just about what the clinician thinks, but uh, is the person motivated to do that? Are they expecting any changes? And that might completely change how they react to it. But we, we didn't have that information, unfortunately. But I encourage anyone who uh, who does studies on gait modifications to uh, to ask those questions. We, we actually did another uh, study that was published about a year ago now in uh, in Masters Runners where we, uh, we had them try on different shoes um, and increasing their cadence. And we asked them at the end, um, let's, let's hypothesize that you have knee pain right now. If we told you that you could change the way you run by increasing your cadence or change your shoes, and that could both help reduce your knee loading, mm -hmm. uh, which one would you choose? And it was a 55-45% split between the two. So some people said, I don't want to change how I run. I'm happy to change my shoes. And some people said, uh, no, I like my shoes. Don't change how I run. Uh, or I want to change how I run, but leave me my shoes. So I think we just need to tailor to the person. Um, and that's a key point clinically, at least. It's really interesting. So now you're just giving me more questions to ask now. But the people you chose, the 68 runners you chose, did you make sure that they, did you try and limit any preconceptions? Were they not therapists themselves or not involved in? How did you choose them to make sure that there wasn't a, well, this is supposed to hurt us now? Mm -hmm. uh, no, we didn't. Um, but they, they were um, all people who hadn't tried any gate modifications before. So that was part of our questionnaires before entering the study. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they, they all corresponded to that. But the, like, I'm trying to remember, uh, we probably had uh, one or two or three healthcare professionals in there, but they were definitely not uh, running related uh, people, you know. Okay, wonderful. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, JF. It's been amazing. I, I can't wait to listen back to this episode myself. There's so much in there. Um, if people want to get in contact with you and follow you, then you've got one of the most sensible, easy to remember um, social media names out there. It's just JF Escudia. It's great. It's simple. <laughs> simple. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks, Matt, for, for having me. Always great to chat with you. And uh, I like uh, I like your questions. And uh, 
I, I can tell that you're you're thinking about stuff while you're asking your questions. It's not just like a, a pre-made list of <laughs> questions. Oh, God, no. I have a list. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, I like the discussion that comes with it. And, uh, yeah, I, I have a rough list, but my guests always make me forget that list because I react off you. And yeah, it's it's testimony to you guys because you come up with things that I wasn't thinking of and obviously try and keep it focused on topic. But no, you, once again, you've, you've made me quiz things in my mind and start challenging stuff now. That's what it's all about. So it's really good. So yeah, people can follow you on where are you Twitter and Instagram. You're both Jay Fasculia, aren't you? Yeah, I, I slowed down on the Twitter uh, stuff, but I, I'm still there. I'm still there every now and then. Instagram, uh, yep, still my at JF Escudier, all in one word. And the running clinic is still very active, um, courses internationally still, you're getting around the countries? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to around Montreal, uh, leaving this week. Uh, I'll be teaching in Japan in March, be teaching in uh, all around Canada in April, uh, going to Europe in May. So, yeah. Whereabouts in Europe? I'm going to Belgium. Of course, that's going to be yeah. French speaking, hasn't it? Do you ever met? When was the last time you were in the UK? Ah, uh, that would have been a few years ago now. But you know what? I'm teaching in Belgium, but in English. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm doing a mix of uh, French and English when I'm going. Okay. In okay. Yeah. Okay. Belgium's not so far away. Uh, we're active in a lot of different countries now. In Italy, we're a, mm. a lot in France, but in Italy, we have uh, quite a few courses a year. Um, New Zealand at the end of this year as well. So for those. Uh, for listeners who are uh, in that area, I'll be there uh, with Kim in um, at the end of the year. So yeah, traveling Amazing. quite a bit. I'm enjoying Definitely it. recommend. Definitely recommend people look at that. So on Instagram, it's the Running Clinic. There are some different translations depending on the country they're from, but I think the English-speaking one is at the Running Clinic on Instagram, and on Twitter it's Clinic Running. And you have to be careful because it's obviously quite a popular name. And I think. Just check. You've got to see the logo. This is sometimes you can go somewhere that is definitely not the running clinic. They just got that name first. So watch out, people, when you're looking. For that, that's what happened with Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just make sure you see Jeff Esculia. Make sure you see Blaise Dubois, um, and then and then you'll be fine if they're involved in it. Right. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to just remind people for um, I shut down that on February the 13th we've got uh, Dr. Izzy Moore. Um, who's going to be um, really looking forward to that. It's going to be fantastic. Probably looking at um, at uh, the female runners and maybe what things we need to change when we know that we've got a female runner on the treadmill. Uh, do we start looking at different characteristics? Do we start hypothesizing in slightly different ways? That would be very interesting. And then on Thursday, uh, March the 2nd at 8 p.m., that's on a Thursday, that one, um, I guess, will be Alison Gruber, which is going to be fascinating as well. Um, so there we go. If you want to join us live, if you've been listening to this podcast thinking, ah, oh, I wish I'd been there to ask um, JF questions face-to-face, kind of online face-to-face, then all you got to do is go to YouTube and um, on one of those dates and you can be here asking questions. I think a few people did join us tonight. So if I didn't get a chance to answer any questions, Liz Bailey was in the house. Oh, it's the shoe guy, says Liz Bailey. Um, and then she says, brilliant stuff, that's it, the shoe guy. Um, and uh, brilliant stuff. I should be listening back and taking notes. Yeah, there's plenty of notes to take there. So once again, JF, thank you so much for filling our pads with valuable information. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. And uh, until next time. Thank you very much. I'm going to shut down and I'll say thank you to you personally, JF, so don't touch any buttons yet. Thanks, people. Um, and hopefully see you for the next episode. Thank you. You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance.